Is Jesus fully God, as Orthodox Christianity asserts, or was Jesus a lesser God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim, or maybe not God at all, like Islam claims? We're going to talk about this today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Thursday, May the 14th of 2009, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and I want to welcome you to part two of our study on the doctrine of the Trinity. And of course, this being part two, I would actually ask that you go back and listen not only to the lesson on God's unity, in case you missed that one two lessons ago, but also part one of our study on the Trinity, which was from last week. So if you've listened to both of those, welcome. We're so glad to have you with us. If you haven't listened to those, do make sure you go back and listen to those uh, lessons first because they really lead into this one. And this one would not be quite the same without those. So anyway, hope you guys are having a fantastic week and that God is blessing you and that you are being a light for God this week. And uh, Hope that you guys have been enjoying this study. I have really enjoyed doing this stuff on the Trinity. The the Knowing God series has been uh, has been a lot of fun too. But specifically focusing on the Trinity, this is something that I really love to talk about. I don't know. It's it's one of those things that uh, I I spent a lot of years not really fully understanding, and now that I've got a fuller understanding of it or a better understanding of it, it's something that I really like to talk about. Uh, so I think it's it's very fundamental to understanding God as Christianity understands Him. In case you uh, you missed our lesson on Monday, uh, I did my graduation last week, went out to, to Charlotte, North Carolina for my graduation from Southern Evangelical Seminary. It was fantastic. Uh, the, the drive to and from was a little bit tiresome, to say the least, but uh, we made it both ways, and we are now back, and this week I'm just trying to kind of play catch-up with uh, with email and uh, with everything else that needs to be done, and in the meantime, you know, my kids are getting ready to finish up school, and so, you know, just being pulled all kinds of different ways, and I know that you guys are going through the same stuff right now, so anyway... Hope you guys are ready for this lesson, because I know I am. Uh, Just one quick thing, and that is to remind you guys that this month, everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation of $50 or more to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which of course is our ministry, uh, will receive a copy of the book Conversational Evangelism by Norman and David Geisler. And honestly, this is the best book I've read in a while. As I keep telling you guys, this book will show you how to turn apologetics into a way to make bridges, not walls. There are some great resources in this book for how to talk to people who aren't believers, and it even goes into specific questions to ask people from different uh, worldviews or different uh, beliefs. So anyway, everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation of $50 or more this month before the end of May 2009 is going to get a copy of this book sent to you. I really want you guys to get your hands on this book. It's fantastic. So if you want to make a donation to our ministry, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and on the right-hand side, you can click on Support, and you can make a tax-deductible donation through PayPal right there. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started with today's lesson with a quick word of prayer. 
Father God, we just thank you once again for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us, both through scripture and through reason. Lord, uh, you've revealed yourself uh, to be a trinity of persons, three persons uh, of one essence and one substance in your word. And uh, that sets it apart from reason. Uh, We obviously could not come to that conclusion based on reason alone. So, uh, Lord, we just pray that this lesson will be meaningful, that it will reveal more about you to us, and that we'll just have a better understanding of you. We love you, Lord, and we give this time to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our last lesson, we talked about how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each a person. Each one of them has all the qualities of a person. Of course, a person is defined as having emotion, intellect, and a will, if you remember. And we saw that Scripture reveals that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each have a will, emotion, and intellect, and so therefore each one of those is a separate person. They are not modes or manifestations, and that's actually something that we're going to be responding to next week when we talk about the Oneness Pentecostal cult. Of course, the Oneness Pentecostals assert that uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all modes or manifestations of God. And actually, I wrote a paper specifically on the Oneness Pentecostal cult and defending the Trinity against them. Uh, So, you know, that's what we're going to be covering next week, defending the Trinity against the Oneness Pentecostal cult and modalism. But anyway... Uh, today, let's start with the, the beliefs of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Of course, as we discussed in our last lesson, the Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is God, and so they deny the Trinity. Uh, I would say that they really ask and incorrectly respond to what the next logical question would be once you've determined that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are persons. You know, now that we've seen that they're all persons, are they all God? Are they all the same God? Well, according to Jehovah's Witnesses... They aren't. Rather, the Father is Jehovah and thus fully God, but Jesus, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses, is actually the Archangel Michael, and the Holy Spirit isn't a person at all, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, but he's the the force or the uh, the power of Jehovah God. Not a person, just a power or force, a very inanimate type of thing. So, uh, you know, that's a claim that we really don't need to respond to or address since we've already seen that the Holy Spirit is a person. In fact, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the doctrine of the Trinity has pagan origins. And they'll commonly quote uh, verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, uh, as a way of denying the Trinity. Of course, that verse says that God is not a God of confusion. And in the publication titled, Should You Believe in the Trinity?, This is a little tract that sometimes a Jehovah's Witness will come to your door with. They quote volume 27 of the Encyclopedia Americana in uh, in this tract, noting that the concept of the Trinity is quote-unquote beyond human reason. Well, if it's beyond human reason, they argue that it must not be true, since God is not a God of confusion. Hmm, well, in response to this claim that the Trinity must not be true, since it can't be grasped, by the human mind, we should first of all point out the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. Uh, it doesn't say that we'll be able to fully comprehend God. It's not even talking about the human ability to understand God. Rather, this passage is talking about conducting church services in an orderly manner. Apparently, the Corinthian church was characterized by complete chaos, with people talking out of order and speaking over one another. 
Well, Paul was trying to correct this problem by encouraging the Corinthians to practice order in their services. Uh, secondly, and perhaps equally as significant, you know, this quote from the uh, the Encyclopedia Americana says a lot more than what's quoted in the Watchtower booklet titled, Should You Believe in the Trinity? Uh, looking at everything that the Encyclopedia Americana says, we read, It is held that although the doctrine is beyond the grasp of human reason, and that's what they quoted right there, it is, like many of the formulations of physical science, not contrary to reason and may be apprehended, though it may not be comprehended by the human mind, end quote. So what they quote in their booklet, what the Jehovah's Witnesses quote in this little tract is obviously taken just completely out of context in an effort to make it appear as though an authoritative text is being quoted. But what they've done is they've just done violence to the encyclopedia's text. And third, we should note that just because our minds can't grasp something or comprehend something, that doesn't necessarily make it false. You know, I personally don't grasp or comprehend all the the laws of physics, for example, the laws of physics pertaining to the universe. But that doesn't mean that those laws aren't true. Because if they weren't true, you know, we wouldn't exist. So just because I don't understand them doesn't mean that they're not true. And the same applies to this claim from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Just because we can't understand something fully doesn't mean it's not true. Well, you know, this type of dishonest scholarship is pretty typical of the Watchtower publications. Elsewhere in this same booklet, they quote someone named Jesuit Foreman as having written that, quote, the New Testament writers give us no formal or formulated doctrine of the Trinity, no explicit teaching that in one God there are three co-equal divine persons, end quote. However, when we read the entire quote in its context, we should note that Jesuit Foreman had actually written that, quote, they gave us no formal or formulated doctrine of the Trinity, no explicit teaching that in one God there are three co-equal divine persons, but they do give us an elemental Trinitarianism, the data from which such a formal doctrine of the triune God may be formulated, end quote. So again, this is just completely dishonest scholarship from the Watchtower. Obviously, Jesuit Foreman was actually validating the doctrine of the Trinity rather than discrediting it. And so what the Watchtower was doing there is taking it out of context. Well, you know, one of the other things that we read in Should You Believe in the Trinity is a denial of Christ's deity. They write, quote, Jesus never claimed to be God. Everything he said about himself indicates that he did not consider himself equal to God in any way, not in power, not in knowledge, not in age. And then it goes on to say that, quote, in every period of his existence, whether in heaven or on earth, his speech and conduct reflect subordination to God. God is always the superior, Jesus the lesser one who is created by God, end quote. Well, let's go ahead and respond to this, because this is probably the most serious allegation that the Jehovah's Witnesses make, not only against the Trinity, but also against the entire Christian religion. Well, let's just have it be known right up front here that Jesus did indeed claim to be God, not only explicitly, but implicitly as well. Uh, when God came to Moses in the burning bush, he revealed his name to Moses when he said, I am 
who I am. That's Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Well, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was commonly used in Jesus' day and age, this term, I am, uh, which referred to God, is translated as ego a me. These are the exact same words that Jesus uses to refer to himself in the New Testament on several occasions. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus tells uh, the Jews and the Pharisees, before Abraham was... I am, ego a me, the same words that we find in the Septuagint for Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, while the Jehovah's Witnesses don't identify this as an instance in which Jesus claimed to be God, the Jews who were present when Jesus said this clearly understood what he was saying, and that's why they, they followed that by picking up stones, and they wanted to kill Jesus since that was the punishment for blaspheming God. Well, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, John chapter 18, verses 5 and 6 tell us that when the Roman guards and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came to arrest him, Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? And they responded by stating that they were there for Jesus. Well, what did Jesus say in response to that? I am. Well, in most translations, it has the word he after those words in italics, but the italics actually indicates that that word is implied. Uh, the Greek simply says Ego a me. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 27, when the disciples are out on the sea in their boats and Jesus appears walking on the water and they fear that it's a ghost, right? So what does Jesus say? He says, take courage. And most translations say, it is I. But this phrase, it is I, is actually another instance of Jesus using the words, ego a me, in reference to himself. So really what it says is, take courage, I am. When Jesus was about to be crucified, he was brought before the high priest for questioning. And the high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus responded with those very words again. Ego a me, I am. That's from Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. The prophet Isaiah recorded Jehovah God as saying, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. That's Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Well, Jesus used this same title for himself in Revelation 117, for example, where he said, I am the first and the last. That's a title reserved for God. Isaiah also referred to the coming Messiah as a mighty God in chapter 9, verse 6. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that this is a title for the Messiah, which indicates that he would be a lesser God. However, the same title, mighty God, is used in reference to Jehovah God himself in the very next chapter of the book, in uh, chapter 10, verse 21, which, uh, which says that there would be a remnant of Jacob which would return to the mighty God. Isaiah had also recorded Jehovah God as saying, I am Jehovah, that is my name and my glory, I will not give to another. That's in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. However, as Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 5, he said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So clearly, Jesus was claiming to be God in this instance, since God had already declared that he wouldn't share his glory with another. So the obvious conclusion is that if Jesus shared the glory with the Father before the world began, and if God doesn't share his glory with another, then Jesus is necessarily God. In Joel chapter 3, verse 12, Jehovah says, I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. You know, this is a job 
that uh, that only God himself was entitled to carry out, judging the nations. But in John chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, Jesus said, quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of man end quote in second timothy chapter 4 verse 1 paul writes i solemnly charge you in the presence of god and of jesus christ who is to judge the living and the dead so if judging the nations uh, if judging is god's responsibility and jesus is going to be the judge of the nations and of individuals as both jesus and paul claimed then clearly jesus must be god So to demonstrate that he had authority, which only God could have, Jesus told the paralytic in the second chapter of Mark, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's verse 5. And so some scribes who were present responded to this by saying, He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, they understood the implication of what Jesus was doing. They were correct in their uh, in their assertion that only God can forgive sins. But to prove to them that he had the authority to forgive sins, Jesus responded to these scribes by saying, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Well, you know, obviously it would be easier to say that one's sins are forgiven, since telling a paralytic to get up and walk would be physically impossible. But just to prove that he did have the authority to forgive sins, Jesus performed the miracle of healing the paralytic and instructing him to get up, take his pallet, and walk. You know, this is a clear instance of Jesus claiming to be God. Well, another power, aside from healing, which belongs exclusively to God, is the sovereignty that he has over life. Life belongs exclusively to God, and only he can give it. That's according to verses like Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, and 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. However, Jesus is quoted by John as saying, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. That's John chapter 5, verse 21. He also gave life back to Lazarus after Lazarus had been dead for several days. You know, these are things that only God himself can do. And by doing these things, Jesus was clearly claiming and proving himself to be God. Jesus also claimed to be God by accepting worship. Of course, God forbids that anyone worship anyone or anything other than himself from uh, verses like Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, or Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. You know, this is why Paul and Barnabas refused to allow people to worship them in Acts chapter 14, uh, verses 13 through 15. We also see that angels refuse worship. For example, uh, Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. So if Jesus was merely an angel, as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim, they claim that he was the archangel Michael, he would not have accepted worship. However, Jesus accepted worship any time and any place that it was offered to him. And by doing so, he was implicitly claiming to be God. The leper worshipped him in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. The Roman official bowed down before him and acknowledged Jesus' ability to perform miracles in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. He accepted worship from the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, verse 25. He accepted worship from the mother of James and John in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. He accepted the worship 
worship of the man who had been possessed by the demon legion in Mark chapter 5, verse 6. He accepted worship from the blind man in chapter 9, verse uh, 38 of John, when he said, Lord, I believe. That's what, the, uh, that's what the blind man said. Lord, I believe. And then he worshiped Jesus, and Jesus accepted it. In fact, Jesus is recorded as having received worship from people a total of nine times in the gospel narratives, and never once, never once did Jesus rebuke them for worshiping him. Instead, if anything, he commended them. Jesus also claimed to be God by telling his disciples to pray in his name. That's what we find in verses like uh, John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Uh, Also, John chapter 15, verse 7. He also went so far as to claim that nobody comes to the Father except through him. That's John chapter 14, verse 6. And so it's for these reasons that we actually find that the disciples did indeed pray directly to Christ. Uh, For example, Acts chapter 7, verse 59. Jesus also claimed to be God implicitly through many of the parables that he told. In fact, uh, Philip Payne did his doctoral dissertation on this very subject at Cambridge University, and what he found, he noted that, quote, out of Jesus' 52 recorded narrative parables, 20 depict him in imagery in which the Old Testament typically refers to God. End quote. And so Payne thus concludes that, quote, Jesus depicts himself in these parables as the shepherd, and in so doing, implicitly claims to be God. End quote. So let's ask this question that the Jehovah's Witnesses make. Is Jesus a created being? Is he really the archangel Michael? Well, you know, we don't know a whole lot about Michael, but a lot of what we do know about him is based on what's recorded in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, the archangel Michael is referred to as, quote-unquote, one of the chief princes. By contrast, Jesus is said to be the unique son of God. In John chapter 3, verse 16, for example. But the Jehovah's Witnesses take this claim only begotten from John chapter 3, verse 16, and interpret it to mean that Jesus was created. However, this term doesn't mean that Jesus was created or that he had a beginning. Rather, it means unique or one of a kind. And further, the New Testament states that Jesus was actually the creator of the angels in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, but not as one of them. He was not one of the angels. He created the angels. He's also referred to as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, not as one of the chief princes, like he's described in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. So I think that title alone, uh, one of the chief princes, uh, eliminates the possibility that Jesus could have been the archangel Michael. Well, you know, before we, do, uh, before we finish our discussion on the deity of Christ, let's look at a couple more verses that the Jehovah's Witnesses will commonly point to when they say that Jesus was lesser than the Father. And these verses supposedly indicate that Jesus was indeed lesser than the Father. Well, first, they point to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, which says that, quote, the head of Christ is God, end quote. Well, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, this is a clear indication that Jesus isn't God, but is actually a lesser deity. However, when we look at this context, we see that Paul also states in the same verse that the man is the head of the woman. So, 
man and woman share an identical nature and an identical essence in that they're both human. So what this tells us is that just like men and women are of uh, an identical nature and essence, so too Jesus has an identical nature and essence to God. So does this mean that there's a hierarchy in the Trinity in which uh, maybe the persons of the Trinity have an order or a ranking? Not at all. They have different functions, just like a husband and wife. They're not uh, One is not better than the other. They just have different functions in the relationship. Their nature with one another, however, is equal just like Jesus' nature is identical to the nature of God. Well, the final verses that Jehovah's Witnesses will commonly refer to is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, uh, both of which refer to Jesus as firstborn. And they reason that this is a clear indication that Jesus was actually created. He's not eternal like God. However, the Greek word for firstborn is prototakos, which doesn't mean or carry the implication of being the first created. Rather, it means the foremost or the first in rank. And that's actually exactly how the exact same word is used in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. In other words, Jesus is positionally supreme over all things, which Jesus actually affirmed when he said that he had all authority on heaven and on earth. That's from Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Now, if Paul or John had wanted to refer to Jesus as being the first being that was uh, that was created, they would have used a different Greek word, the Greek word protoktesis, which is a term that's never used in reference to Jesus in the entire New Testament. So clearly, taking the evidence into account, taking into uh, account also the objections that, Je- that the Jehovah's Witnesses make about Jesus' deity, it's clear that the Bible does tell us that Jesus is God. He is fully God in nature and essence and substance. He's just different as a person. He's a distinct person, but he is one with the Father, just like he claimed. So anyway, if you guys have any questions about that, definitely feel free to write me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. I know that there are a lot of objections there that uh, maybe haven't been addressed here. Um, As I've told you guys before, though, if you want to see this addressed uh, more fully, you can get Norman Geisler's book, Systematic Theology, Volume 2, which goes much deeper uh, than we did in this study. This is just trying to skim the surface of the issue. So anyway, like I said, if you guys have any questions, definitely email me. But God bless you guys, and thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org, a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. 
We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Thank you.